Today we begin a new series called Putting on the Easy Yoke. What is it that Jesus is calling us to? A try harder life? Just do better and you'll get there? I think we've all felt the weight of that mindset when we fail, and it is not the easy yoke. There is a real bondage that left unchecked leads to despair and ultimately death. But the good news is that Jesus has provided a way out of that bondage into freedom and life. This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. The vision of TRC Ministries is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the church using the resources of the Kingdom of God. Here is Tori Bjorkland, President of TRC Ministries, teaching at Caravan Fellowship on what the steps of bondage are, what we are in bondage to, and the freedom that is available through Christ. When I was young, one of my favorite programs on TV was The Six Million Dollar Man. In the beginning of the story, at the start of every show, they showed about how his test rocket blew up and he was injured in that. And I remember this call from the, uh, from the pilot to the people watching, she's breaking up, she's breaking up, and, and then it, it exploded and everything came to pieces. And it reminds me of the sentence that was broadcast during the uh, Apollo 13 that was attributed to the astronaut uh, Jim Lovell. And I don't know if he actually said this or not, you know, it might be more the from the movie Apollo 13 than reality, but I remember this statement, Houston, we've got a problem. All the indications that they had pointed to a major problem. In fact, the symptoms that they were seeing were so out of the norm, and there were so many, that it was hard for anybody to actually believe that it was going that bad. They thought maybe there was something wrong with the instrumentation and not really all of those things could be going wrong. Yet it was true. They really did have a problem and ignoring the symptoms or denying the reality would not help the team address the problem that they had. And today I want to talk about a problem that we have that I'll say that I have had and that mankind in general has and I believe that oftentimes our Western evangelical gospel does not address adequately but Jesus did address adequately. We have a problem and Jesus spoke clearly of it in John chapter 8 Verse 34, he said, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now, it's often thought by people that when they sin, it's outside of the norm for them. And they don't really have a problem, just something went haywire. But Jesus spoke clearly about the problem. And did you notice what the problem is? We, as evangelicals, particularly with my background growing up in an evangelical background, 
the focus tends to be on sin. But that isn't what Jesus was addressing, is it? The issue was bondage, slavery to sin. The problem we have is bondage. Sin is the indication of the problem. Now, that may seem odd for me to be saying that. It's not what we're taught oftentimes. What we, don't, we don't hear this on the radio or read it in our books because the gospel that we often hear insists that sin is the problem. I want to talk through this idea a little bit this morning and I want to, if necessary, reorient our thinking. You might already see it that way, but if, if what I'm saying sounds a little bit radical, I want you to think about this, okay? So I'm going to go through the process of slavery. And the first thing I want to point out is that this bondage is voluntary. It's not involuntary. The issue that the Bible has with mankind is that we have submitted ourselves to this bondage and have taken part of it by choosing to deny, often deny, the existence of sin. So I want to walk you through this process. This is a common process, and this is something that I experienced as a person, both before I was a believer and even after I was a believer. And I think this is important for us as believers to come to grips with. So the first thing is that we deny both the symptom and the problem. Remember, the symptom is sin, but the problem is bondage. We deny the symptoms by telling ourselves we aren't that bad. Our actions aren't hurting anyone else. How many times have you heard that? I remember I heard that all the time from my friends. Yeah, I can do what I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. We deny the problem by telling ourselves that we are doing exactly what we want to do and we can change anytime we want to. You know, some of you know that I smoked for nine years and it was a real struggle to stop smoking. There was a point when I believed that I could quit anytime I wanted to. And then there became a point where it became a joke because I would tell people, I can stop smoking anytime I want. I know that because I've done it a thousand times. What's the joke? I'm still smoking. Not today, but at that time. The fact that I quit a thousand times proved that I couldn't. But we deny the problem by telling ourselves, this is what we want to do. And we can stop when we don't want to do it anymore. Deep down, we know we're wretched. We know that we're trapped. But we work hard to suppress and ignore that truth. The Bible talks about this situation like this. It says, for we once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's Titus 3, verse 3. Listen, look at that list. We once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to what? 
various lusts, pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. These are all symptoms. That last list was symptoms of the previous list. So the first list is what? Foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. So the first list is the problem. And Paul was saying that we also had this problem and it resulted in us spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. So that's the first step is we try to deny it. The second step comes when we recognize and try to manage the symptom while still denying the problem. Okay, and this is, by the way, I think one of the inadequacies of the gospel we tend, as Western evangelicals, that we tend to teach, that we tend to preach. And that is, Jesus came to manage sin. And what do I mean by that, manage sin? Well, I remember early in my childhood seeing the bumper sticker that I've heard people rail on now, but I thought it was a pretty good one until I really thought about it. It said, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. The implication being, there is no difference between a Christian and a non-Christian other than God forgiving them. And we are simply managing the result of sin and not dealing with the actual problem of bondage. But the second step is evident when we try to stop doing the things we know are wrong. We begin to recognize how we are hurting others and we begin to make resolutions to change. Now I remember this in, I think it was vacation Bible school, sometime in my childhood. It might have been Sunday school, but I was greatly affected by the teaching that I heard that day, and I determined in my heart that I was going to be good all day the next day. So I asked God to forgive me for my sins when I prayed at night. It was my practice as a child. I'd been taught to do that. And I went to sleep, and I got up the next morning, and I thought, okay, today I'm going to be good. And I don't remember all the details. All I remember is coming to the end of the day feeling like a failure. I had not been good. In fact, probably because I was thinking about it more, it seemed as though I had been particularly bad. I was not a good little boy. So we began to recognize in the second step how we're hurting others. We began to make resolutions to change and sin management becomes our main objective. And what does that look like? We maybe limit the things that we do. I was too young to think about it in these terms, but you know, we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't date girls that do. We have little, little sayings that we use to try to manage the sin in our life. The third step then is when we give up trying. We accept the symptom 
while trying to live with the problem. We begin to say with Popeye, I am what I am. That's just the way I am. This is the way I am, and you'll just have to live with it. Many people in this stage that are adults will attend meetings, go to AA or something like that. They'll take other steps to try to manage their bondage, but they're convinced that they will be a slave for the rest of their life. It's just the reality. Until I die, I will be in bondage to this situation. The final step, and this is where I ended up, the final step to slavery is despair. That shows up in various ways, despondency, anger, oversensitivity to anybody's implication, but we're just in despair. At this point, we have given up every attempt to change. This is the step where many people commit suicide. Recently, oh, about a year ago, I was in touch with one of my cousins for I haven't been in touch with for a long, long time. And I came to realize, you know, he was a, a man that I, I admired. I wanted to be like him. And he was a sad situation. I just I became brokenhearted after getting in touch with him and seeing where his life was. And, and when I asked him, how are you doing? He said, oh, I still drink too much. And, uh, you know, I realized that the trajectory of his life had not changed in any way. It's just that he had become depressed and despondent. He was in despair. This is how the Bible puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, 12 and 13. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You lived in this world without God and without hope. So that's the process that I have observed and I think the Bible walks us through. But to keep you in bondage, Satan must keep you deceived thinking that there is no way out. However, the truth is that Christ can bring freedom to those trapped by sin. And this was the gospel that came to me, not through the words of anybody, except Jesus Christ himself through the Bible and the Spirit of God speaking into my heart. The truth is that Christ can, be free, can bring freedom and there are two truths that we need to know that will bring hope for delivery. So these are the two truths that I believe the Bible puts forward and that I came to realize. Number one, Jesus has entirely dealt with sin. All sin, all people. Now, that's not taught commonly. What is taught commonly is that Jesus has dealt with sin. There's basically two versions of this. One, Jesus has dealt with sin for those who were predetermined by God to be forgiven. This is the concept of predestination. Or, Jesus has dealt with the sin of those who have chosen 
to accept his death as their payment for sin. But here's what the Bible tells us. 2 Corinthians 5.15, for example, says, And he, meaning Jesus, died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, for him, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. First Peter, Peter said this in chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also died for sins once for all. Once for all. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Now, these aren't the only passages that say this. Romans 5 talks about the scope of every human being being under the curse of death that came from Adam and how the same scope applies from the death of Jesus Christ. Now I want to be careful here that we understand that does not mean that all are saved. You see, because sin is no longer the problem. It's bondage. That's the problem. The sin has been dealt with. I would say that every sin that was ever committed, ever will be committed, has already been paid for by the death of Christ. Once for all. This means the problem of sin has been completely taken care of, and it's no longer a problem. Every person who has ever lived has their sin already paid for. But that does not mean that everyone is saved. Our sins are taken care of by Christ's death, but his life is what saves us. That's what Roman 5 tells us. His life is what saves us. He died for our sins, but he rose again that we might not live for ourselves, but him. That we might have a new life, the kind of life that was in him. That we might have that life also. Your sins are paid for, but your freedom is awaiting your participation. And that's the second reality we need to realize. So the first is that every sin that was ever committed and ever will be committed has already been paid for. But there is a freedom that is awaiting us in new life, and it requires our participation. So if you remember earlier, I was talking about the fact that our bondage is voluntary. That's why our bondage is voluntary, because the means of deliverance have already been provided by God. As 2 Corinthians 5.15 said, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Freedom requires participation, and these are the teachings within the Christian church that have confused people about grace. This idea of participation is one that people trip over. They stumble over this. And it's often because we have mixed up the concept of grace in our presentation of the gospel. Some people teach that you cannot participate in our own salvation. And I just say, that's not biblical. You can't do it on your own. That's biblical. Without Jesus, you can't do it. Without Jesus, we can do nothing, right? In terms of the kingdom of God. 
But the Bible is, tr is very clear that we are participants in the grace of God. I, I like the way Dallas Willard puts it. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Our participation does not equate to our earning salvation. It only equates to our participation in what God is offering through his grace. So Jesus gave the solution to bondage this way. So you remember it was, it was Jesus that said the problem was, was bondage. Let me read that first part again. This is John 8, 34. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And here's what he said just prior to that. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. If we read through that passage there, you'll find him saying, after the truth shall make you free, and people saying, we're not slaves. He says everybody who sins is a slave to sin, and... If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. He's talking about freedom from the slavery to sin. So where does that start? We often hear the phrase, the truth shall set you free. But it's not like the truth just swoops in and does something on its own, and we're pass passive bystanders who kind of get swept up in the vortex of truth traveling by. No, he starts out saying, if you, what? Abide in my word. Now, what, what does that mean, to abide in his word? What is abide? How about this? Sometimes we want to talk fancy to our company when they show up, and we say, step into my humble abode. What's that? Abode is the place where we live. Abode is where we abide. If you want to abide... In the word of Jesus Christ, you live in that word. So basically, there's a difference between having a thought and adopting a way of thinking. It's not the truth that makes you free, having a thought about truth. No, it's abiding or making a way of life out of the truth. It's having a way of thinking, making that the way that you think about things. It is the way of thinking that determines the way of being. The way of thinking determines our way of being. Now, Jesus said that the word, his word, is spirit and life in John 6, 63. In Hebrews, it says it's living and active, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, and able to reveal the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when we abide in the word of Christ, we're making that, we're adopting that as a way of thinking, making that, his teachings, a way of life. And it becomes life. We recognize that, that our participation, our dwelling in that word brings with it power of spirit and life. Now there's a progression in Christ's solution to bondage. So it starts, or it includes us making our abode 
in his words. And basically, that is taking the ideas and images of Christ and dwelling on those in your mind. You know, the Bible talks a lot about setting your mind on different things. There's, I think it was, Dave calls it his TV guide. Philippians 4, 8. Whatever is good, true, noble, of good repute, think on these things. It also says, set your mind in Colossians 3, set your mind on the things above. Is that, that the moon and the stars and the birds? No. The concept of that's where life comes from. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, you have to be born again from above. The source of life is the place where you set your mind. <clears throat> Let me contrast <clears throat> the abode of the world with the abode of the word. This is the contrast that I see of abiding in the world and abiding in the words of Jesus Christ. So Psalm 84, 10 through 12, has the idea of abiding in the word of God, which is, by the way, the word of Christ. Remember, Hebrews said that in the past, God spoke through various means, right? And today he has spoken through what? His son, Jesus Christ. The word of Christ, the life of Christ, and the word of God are synonymous, the same thing. Psalm 84, 10 through 12 says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in thee. There's so many passages in Psalm about how, how his word is like silver, like gold, and how valuable it is. But this is, talks about making his abode, about living in the presence of God. Now let me read you another song. This one, I had this album. I really enjoyed this man, his music when I was young. Here's what he says. They say there's a heaven for those who wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. You know, only the good die young. This is a contrast in thinking. This is what the world is telling us. You might recognize that in various different ways. You have to choose where you're setting up your tent. Where you're putting your abode, your humble abode. You need to understand that there's a way of thinking, an orientation that permeates our culture and threatens to choke out the word. 
we must realize that the world offers things that sound appealing. What the world has to offer, it does sound appealing. People like Billy Joel, who wrote those lyrics, say the sinners are much more fun. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. This all sounds appealing if your orientation allows for it. And many of us have already fallen for that trap. But the good news is that we can still choose our orientation. We might have already believed that. We might have already adopted that. Or maybe we feel the, that vortex <laughs> drawing us in, pulling us in. But how do we choose? By where you set up your tent. What does that look like? What you set your mind on. Where you spend your time. I made some decisions quite some time ago. I listened to the radio. Usually I listen to uh, public radio. It's because I don't like much of the music that I hear anymore. So I want to listen to talking. I get really frustrated listening to that, though. And so I started, as I travel, listening to the Word of God, listening to teachers, setting my mind on these other things. And it's amazing how just something that seems pretty innocuous it just, it, it pulls one way or the other. Where we make our abode determines what we become. And unlike Billy Joel, I would rather stand outside the door, in the rain and the sun, on the doorstep of the house of my God, than dwell in the apparent shelter and security of the tents of wickedness. Because I know God won't let me stand there for long. He'll come out and invite me in and I'll find that he's been waiting for me. So one of the things I want to try to practice is each time that I speak, I want to call for a choice to be made. I want you to think about what it might mean for you to set up your tent in the word of God, in the words of Jesus Christ, as opposed to in the stream of this culture, of this world, and the way it thinks. What does that look like for you? Ask God to help you sort that out and figure out what you can do to limit your time in the tents of the wicked, if you will. You don't have to dwell there. You don't have to make that your home. But, you know, we have to walk through it, right? We're affected by this culture, but we don't need to buy into it, and we don't need to set up our home there. Let me pray. Lord, help us to understand how to abide in the word of Christ. Help us to understand how that choice is the beginning point of the freedom that you offer in Jesus. Help us to see the lies of this world and the enemy, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, how we can see, help us to see his lies, expose them for what they are, remove the appeal, and draw us more and more into your word. Help us to set up our home there. 
and I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, go to www.regenerationcenter.org.